0: Radio, live from San Diego, California, on Wednesday, July the sixth, two thousand eleven. Welcome to ACO Watch, a midweek review. I'm your host, Greg Masters, and I'm excited today. Joining me on this session is Gunter Vessels. Is uh he is a very smart person that I met on Twitter at Gunter Vessels. That's G U N T E R W E S S E L S. Follow him on Twitter. Uh, really smart guy. We've uh, interacted uh, on Twitter now for the last several months and uh, have chatted once or twice in the past. And uh, he came down here to Carlsbad, and we got to have some Thai food together, which was uh, which is a real pleasure. At any rate, uh, I'm going to read a little bit about Gunther, and then we're going to get into our program today. So, uh, first up, Gunther, welcome to the broadcast.
1: Thanks, Greg. It's great to be here.
0: And uh, you're calling from Tucson, Arizona today, correct? That's correct,
1: where it is. A little sunny and
0: rainy at the same time. Okay. Well, I guess that could be somewhat of a blessing, rain in the desert, yeah. Yeah. Okay, so let me tell you about Gunter Vessels. Gunter is a partner uh, and healthcare practice principal at the Total Innovation Group, a multi-partner specialty consulting firm based in Tampa, Florida. He works with clients in the healthcare, information technology, and manufacturing markets. His practice focuses on the commercialization of innovations. His client engagements typically involve a programmatic approach to integrating the mission, operating resources, and metrics required to achieve market-leading performance. In addition to healthcare and high-tech companies, he works with three of the Dow 30, the largest food service provider in the world, the leading document company, numerous hospital corporations, group purchasing organization, and leading manufacturers. Uh, he has also worked with policymakers and health Economists in the U.S., Canada, the U.K., and Europe as they sought to rationalize the adoption of new technologies. Gunther is author of articles on value-based purchasing and healthcare reform, capital equipment acquisition, leadership, and interpersonal influence. He is a sought-after speaker on the practical implications of regulatory changes and sustaining innovation during periods of industry and organizational change. Gunther has a Ph.D. from the University of Arizona, and an MBA from the A. Gary Anderson Graduate School of Management at the University of California. I take it that's Berkeley? No, it's Riverside. Riverside, UCR, okay. And Bachelor's of Science in Molecular Biology from the University of California at Riverside as well. So, Gunther, having read that, I want to mention for our um, uh, listeners today that uh, we posted your uh article on acowatch.com titled clearer thinking on acos and healthcare delivery polarizations tell us a little bit about that
1: Yeah, you know it's and thanks for that that nice introduction um you know we we spend a lot of time up and down the healthcare vertical talking to uh, you know from individual physician practices that we work with a couple of acos we work with Um, the hospital companies and, and then, you know, manufacturers. And there is so much noise out there. And one of the biggest noise makers is the acronym everyone can spell out of this healthcare reform, which is ACO. And, you know, everyone's thinking ACO is going to be a big thing or it's going to be a non-event or where is it going to go? And how does this fit with, you know, the quote unquote death panels? And what about bundled payments? And what about fee schedule adjustments? And there was just, there's all this soup out there. And so, you know, we've been spending the last year and a half just on the road trying to get folks to have a little bit clearer understanding of what's going on, where to stand when the lights come on, and what they need to do to be prepared if they want to play as one of these provider entities or play with those provider entities as they try and execute their mission. And so, you know, the the clearer thinking on ACOs is, you know, our observation there in in everyone you know, stopping and starting with the proposed rule and whether or not they want to be one now or not and what's required. And you know, we've we've really spent a lot of time interacting with some of the thought leaders in the industry, some some actual California organizations, managed service organizations that are doing this. And it you know just emerged that there's a couple of four things you really need to be able to do to do this. Um and as I've been touring around talking to groups of people on this you know, every time we mentioned that four-step part, it, you know, it's like lights came on and went, aha, I, I didn't even think about that. I thought an accountable care organization needed to have this and, and that. And so, you know, that was the, the impetus behind the, the, the little article. And then it's meant to be accessible so that, uh, you know, people who speak English instead of healthcareese can read it and understand it.
0: So let me say that uh, I found the article very helpful, both from um, – uh, a 30,000 uh, foot view, if you will, as well as a granular boots on the ground impact of what you're talking about. So t- talk to us about two things. If you can characterize the general sentiment that you're picking up in your travels and you're in consultations. And uh, wh- where do you, where do you, where do you see this going? Um. So the,
1: the two things, general sentiment, um, there's, i I'd characterize what most providers that we interact with and, and again the g p o s as well um there's there's a lot of angst um there's still quite a bit of residual fear um and some confusion and it you know a lot of that ends up manifesting itself into fatigue and uh, resistance to any sort of change uh, A lot of folks are just standing still trying to figure out where you know where everything's going to end up. Um, and then there's a subset of these uh, providers out there that are being a lot more aggressive, and kind of taking the initiative. And these are these are the ones we call them the well babies. I mean, you know, in the, in the earthquake, the well babies are going to make it no matter what. And uh, they're they're on the offense. They're beginning to to execute on this, assemble the resources they need, um, and being much more acquisitive. Uh, they're they're doing you know they're acquiring resources, relationships, contracts, and all those sorts of things, uh, and they they really you know share what I you know have is a, a lot of optimism for the post reform era. Um, you know, a lot of the things that were going to be doom and gloom in the uh, in the in the light of the new proposed rules seem to be a lot a lot more manageable, a lot more digestible. And if you take the right slant on it, and if you think about the resources you need, you know, there's a lot to be optimistic and, and positive about. And so, you know, we're seeing a lot of, uh, you know, a sub-segment of, of folks being, you know, much more much more aggressive, much more positive
0: about this. Uh, go ahead. So you've outlined what I deem to be a proscription of those resources. Do you want to sort of walk us through it?
1: Well, yeah, and, and so, you know, I started the piece off with saying that let's 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 focus on what we wanted to do with this ACO rule. Why did we go ahead and do it in the first place? Well, you know our, our system is burdened by chronic disease. I mean, one of the big issues that nobody seems to be talking about is the reason we need to do reform is not just because Medicare is the biggest liability in the world, but because Medicare, as the biggest liability in the world, does a couple of things poorly. As a, as a health system, it actually incentivizes the wrong behavior, and that is, you know, turning people with chronic disease into cash cows for the system. And those, you know, those chronic diseases are the focus of the accountable care rule. At least it, it, it seems apparent to me that it is, because the focus on primary care and reducing utilization in these, you know, key disease states—diabetes, heart failure, and kidney disease. You know that's sixty-eight percent of the Medi- or more of the Medicare spend. That's where we got to focus our resources. That's where the, the cost containment is going to come. It's not necess- it's not in orthopedics or all these other areas where there's fraud and abuse and all these headline grabbing things. You know, it's the day-to-day churn where all the money gets eaten up in these slow, you know, chronic diseases that just just pile up. So you know that's what we've got to do with with this rule. And so if you want to be better at doing you know, coordinating care and handling chronic disease and reducing utilization, you know, you got to do four things. You know, you've got you, you got to have really strong medical policy that's going to change people's behavior because, you know, the way we've been educated on how to deal with people with chronic disease is one way, and that is to do what we need to do to them and pile up the codes and treat them and then, you know, kick them along to the next specialist. When in an accountable care environment, we need to be doing a lot more at the point of care. So I call that the Dr. Bieber effect, you know, that the, 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 the effective medical policymaker um, has that rock star appeal because we can't, you know, legislate physician behavior this, as much as we'd like to think we could, even if we wanted to. Uh, physicians are trained to be independent. That's their, you know, that's their lot in life. So you need a, a, a rock star medical policymaker like Justin Bieber. You know, when Justin Bieber says these genes are cute. Twelve million girls go out and buy those genes. And we need a you know medical policy maker in an a c o that says we're going to do things this way, and all the doctors go, yep, you said so and and we do it that way you know that sort of credibility and there aren't there aren't enough of those folks out there that are those charismatic leaders that have that rock star appeal that when they say something it goes. We try and do things a lot more collegially and and, and less uh you know more, more formally or informally or more you know less effectively.
0: Um so you know
1: we we need Dr. Bieber when we need Dr. Bieber badly.
0: You know I I, I get where you're going and I and I absolutely uh, see the impact you're illustrating but when you say Bieber I kind of cringe. <laughs> 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 you know what comes to mind to me for some of us here in the West Coast you know, I think of Jack Cochran, who's the CEO of the Kaiser uh, Permanente Federation, you know, or, um, you know, I, 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 but I get it. You know, you need, a, you need a champion who has that kind of downstream impact. He says, uh, take that hill, and everyone says, go, you know. Yeah,
1: we agree. We will do it. Um, you know, and, and I think that's one of the critical resources that we need as a health system to foster is leadership. Um, and, and I mean, you know, legitimate, you know, kind of charismatic leadership. The, the, the physicians, you know, I just saw a study pop up today that uh, organizations that are headed up by, you know, um, physicians do better than those that are headed up by managers. And it's simply, I think, another testament to the fact that this kind of legitimate leadership that comes from a medical policy background, that you've done that and you've walked the walk, you know, at that magic moment when all health care is delivered in between a patient and a physician or a caregiver when they're having a conversation, that conversation, if you haven't been there and done that, if you don't have that licensure, you know, it's a lot harder for you to get those folks who do do that on a daily basis to, to change what they do. And change really is the, the name of the game here, and change is difficult. So, you know, we need, we need some sort of medical policy. But you, you can't just have a charismatic leader you know to to do the a c o thing properly, you also need a pretty sophisticated i t system and it's not just clinical decision support, although it needs that it's not just all the meaningful use requirements you know which includes physician order entry and prescription and all that sort of stuff. It's not just a clinical system it needs operational com- controls in it as well um you know dashboards triggers event alerts scheduling all that sort of stuff needs to be built into it. It also needs to have the financial components of being able to do some claims administration and claim scrubbing as well as information uptake and download on and off the system and it's like in in the nervous system that the the you know the 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 brain of the organization medical policy is going to use to determine whether or not the medical policymaker's will is being manifest and you know it's going to, you can have to go that last mile and actually beyond because. You know, for an ACO to be effective, you're going to be onboarding and offboarding patients in a very broad geography across multiple areas. Um, And, you know, the rules are set, right, you know, at least on the proposal, you can't own the entire market. So, you know, you're going to have to play nice with other people who don't have the same system. So it's going to have to connect up really well. But, you know, the third-party administration and claims part of this is it's it's kind of a quasi-insurance system that you need to be able to do claims auditing and troubleshooting, et cetera. And that's number two. That sounds like an expensive system because it is. But the the third part of that is you can't just have a smart medical policymaker and a a great nervous system. You need muscles, arms, and and appendages to be able to guide patients. Patients don't necessarily accept your text messages and decide what to do. Um, They need most of these patients, especially those that are costing us everything. They need a human to to help them. They need a care coordinator, someone who can talk to them in, in language that they can understand sometimes not English, and help them navigate the system in a way that they are, uh, they feel supported and they feel empowered so that they'll comply with therapy and do the things they need to do to not be hospitalized downstream. So you need a huge care coordination infrastructure that's a human infrastructure where care coordinators and concierge-type people are helping these patients move through the system, not just... Within a specific care setting, but on the, the difficult to manage transitions in between both, of, you know, on and off board of the care episode in whatever episodic, you know, setting that that is, whether it's a clinic visit or a hospitalization. And that, you know, that's not easy to do. Um, a lot of big health systems are busy building out that infrastructure right now, and it's incredibly
0: expensive.
1: And then, you know, that kind of leads to the four things. You need financial resources to do all this stuff. Not only do you need to hire some, some strong medical policymakers, some excellent medical staff, and so on. You, you need to hire those care coordinators. You need to have a very expensive IT system. And then by the time you've added all that up, if you look at the amount you're going to get back on a, on a, on a utilization avoidance. Uh, even if Medicare gives you everything back that you've saved them, um, it's not going to pay back. But
0: if you do well, 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 let me ask you this. Uh, um, I'm just, I don't know. I'm completely engaged in what you're saying, following um, uh, every point well made. I wanted to ask you about that one question because that goes to uh, a debatable question that's in 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 the conversation now and that is what is a true cost basis to start up an aco on the low end the estimate from cms is 1.8 million and then there's been sort of updates to that as high as from 10 to 24 million so i mean there could be a deep dive just on the cost basis assumptions of building out one of these entities that has yet to be officially defined
1: well and and actually i'd argue it's easier to do it um from zero on a zero base, it's going to be cheaper to build something than it is to build something on top of all the legacy systems, because the legacy systems have inherent value, but they also have inherent cost that you have to, you know, and the migration cost is massive. So, you know, I, I you know, we're, we're hearing numbers in the 10 to $20 million range to be able to evolve whatever it is. And that, that's, of course, it's proportional to the size of the operation. But you don't you don't hit any sizable savings unless you're at that scale of operation. That's a pretty big uh, divot that you've got to fill in with some savings. And you know, if you look at the you know the amount of reimbursement exposure you have, if you've got a thirty to forty percent market share in an area of Medicare patients, it just doesn't pay back.
0: Well, uh, let me ask you this: cause Do you know anything? Uh, are you close at all to the Tucson ACO?
1: Uh, you know i've I've actually been watching them from from on the hill here i 'm closer to some folks in, in California who who've uh, gone ahead and done their insurance license but yeah you know the the uh, this is an offshoot and there's some talent from United Healthcare out here as well um, and you know they're they're optimistic but you know this is a this is actually a pretty small market to be dabbling in um, and it's already very heavily managed care impacted and the demographics are not as favorable as you think if you just think of Arizona.
0: Um, well, I'm sorry if I'm not being real systematic about this, Gunther, but I'm, I'm just I'm being lit up by your comments. Uh, if we were to take your proscription, as I'm now calling it, and I'm posting some of these things out individually on Twitter, you know, the the brain trust issue, the Dr. Bieber, the, the reward participants, improved transitions. If we were to take that screen and run ACO candidates through it, how do you think? What would that report card look like, and does it vary by a region or a market? So,
1: you know, how would a ACA candidate score according to the four yeah. uh, four criteria? Mm-hmm. Um, the 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 hardest one to score well on would be medical policy, obviously. The second hardest would be um, quick care coordination. Um, a lot of and that's where a lot of the building happens. The IT part, you know, you can you can glue together. Uh, a lot of different ways. Um, and, and actually, you know, at HIMSS HIMS this last year, I know you saw, and at HFMA last summer, I even saw some systems that would just sit there as middleware and make that all happen. Um, of course, making it integrate and all that sort of stuff is always easier said than done. But, you know, I think the, the defining criteria is, is the fourth one, which is the, the you know the vat of money, is do you have access to an insurance pool an insurance program? Can you step up and do an insurance, uh, you know, insurance package that's going to allow you to to do that underwriting profit that the CMS is trying to have as a consequence of ACO, the ACO rule. It, you know, the the to me that's the defining criteria because it it's the economic engine that's going to drive the the parallel process of the Medicare ACOs. If you've got your own private pay program that you can save money on these chronic disease people as they head toward Medicare eligibility. Because there's a lot more to be saved at the front end, and that's where a lot of the utilization is going wrong. And by the time they trip the wire and become Medicare eligible, I mean, they're just accelerating in terms of spending utilization. So if you can glue the population together, sponsor your own plan, and, you know, make the underwriting profit, I think you've got an economic engine you can rely on. And then independent of how the – how the CMS rule finally shakes out or whatever tweaks and changes happen, you're still going to be in the business of coordinating care, reducing utilization, improving outcomes, and so on. You're going to have all the processes in place. You're going to make money in, in both environments. And I think, you know, that that to me is where I give most of these organizations, even the ones we're advising, I give them a C uh, at best. They don't, they're underfunded. They don't have enough dry powder. Um, and that's, that's actually why I think we're seeing a lot of private payers step in here and try and do kind of a bear hug for some of these guys and say, come on in, we're, we'll be your friend.
0: And with some exceptions, the private or commercial payer market have been relatively on the sidelines here, at least as far as I can tell.
1: Yeah, so we're seeing a lot of activity. Um, I mean, it, So they're – um, Aetna for example has got a bunch of apps that they're generating to try and help primary care physicians uh, and, and again they've got they've got kind of a game to play here which is do I do I go whole hog and partner in uh, or, or don't I well you know if you're United Healthcare you've got nothing um, you've got a really limited upside whereas if you're a smaller regional carrier or you're you know a little bit more specialized you've got a ton of upside potential because you can help You can help with the promotion of a policy program and, you know, fair management program. You can provide some infrastructure and resources from an IT perspective. And then if you partner with a really well-built, you know, integrated practice network or a physician, physician group, you know, you can probably save quite a bit of money on core disease states like diabetes and, you know, kidney disease. And um, you know, kidney disease is actually more of a Medicare problem than anything else. But, you know, the diabetes cascade that heads toward that with high, high blood pressure is, you know, something you can participate in the savings on. Um, and so, yeah, I think there's we're seeing we're seeing a lot more in investments in IT on the part of um, on the part of payers to try and be supportive of these primary care groups and uh, or integrated practice groups. And then, you know, kind of a a setting up of captives and so on that that they'll invite the the provider to participate so that there's more upside for the provider. Um, And then they can, you know, hopefully gain some market share. I mean, I think the name of the game here is dynamics,
0: right? There's there's going to be a a trading of seats. Right. And perhaps not a new question who sits at the head of the table L- let me ask you this it where's the role of culture in these four parameters that you laid out here is it sort of laced throughout or what role does it play
1: well if you th- if you're talking about organizational culture that starts that starts and uh, extends from the medical policymakers through to the care coordinators uh if it if it's a corporate culture you know and i think that's one of the biggest competitive advantage areas that uh and, again, that's why I see one of the major gaps out there being leadership. Um, you know, if, and, you know, leadership has many other consequences, but the way you determine the effect of leadership is in the language of the organization, and the language is the biggest indicator of culture. How are they talking about patients? How are they talking about what they're doing? How, you know, how does mission and vision and all that stuff permeate the language of the individual provider? Um, it, you know, at the at the point of care, And, you know, you know, backstage where all the machinery works, how do we talk about what we do? Uh, I think culture is essential.
0: So how do you gauge that? I mean, how how do you go in and basically assess uh, an organization or enterprise standing relative to that? uh, Those those ingredients, if you will.
1: Well, so when we, when we do leadership development with these organizations, we, we immediately just we go into a depth interview process where we start asking people, just, just tell me about a typical workday and, and tell me about what you do. Uh, broad, open, open-ended questions, and we're listening for the way they, dis- they describe themselves in the hierarchy uh, of, of uh, you know, the organization, how connected is management, how connected is medical policy. How connected is the patient? How do we, you know, how does the patient, you know, and we're we're looking for key terms there, and you, it's it's rather qualitative, but you know, the the, the result of a depth interview with a, a number of stakeholders will show you pretty quickly that it's, you know, it's very much isolated and an individualistic sort of thing. I drew a graph of this when we were talking about physician preference items at a GPO thing, and I said, you know, uh, it, there's there's these these axes of you know, control by by legitimate means or informal means, uh, so formal and informal controls, and then, you know, the, the compliance of those controls of the other axis. And, you know, the, the difference maker in compliance to controls is the culture. So if, if you feel like it's a participative environment that you have, you know, you've been listened to and you know, all the other management information that, you know, Drucker is famous for, you know, not, management by objectives and so on, all of that if if that's in there, you hear it immediately on the on the lips of the you know anybody that you interview, and you know from there it becomes you know a leadership development task where you sit there, sit back down with leadership, and say, you know as you know, uh, this place is dysfunctional people are you know people don 't trust you people don 't trust anybody else and you know and the the system itself then becomes very much this is in my job description and, and it's hard it 's hard for you to have a uh, you know, a positive surprise and a patient outcome in an organization that is internally, you know, struggling with itself. Whereas, if everybody's focused on a, a coherent mission, they're following behind a, you know, a vision and what they're doing. They see their place in the in, in the machine and how it all works together for to serve our members. You know, that the, the, that's much much easier to hear. And and again, I mean, I don't want to I don't want to single out any specific organization, but there are some membership focused organizations, and on their lips, the management at least say member. The dysfunction comes back when the caregivers don't say member. They say patient or that person. Um, and that, that, that distance is the one that causes the, di- the, the difficulty.
0: So to the extent these insights or themes you're extracting from client engagements, how much of it is sourced from typically hospital settings?
1: Um, you know, our, our projects have been focused heavily on hospitals because that's where it's where a lot of you know the, you, you usually have a much larger organization at that point. Um, but you know, some of our more prominent recent clients are these uh, IPAs and, and MSOs, and you know, there's four or five hundred doctors that are in there, so that's a pretty sizable organization in itself. Um, and so, you know, both both present the same sort of leadership challenge. One is just. Uh, um, you know, it's a little bit more visible in leadership that is, and I, paradoxically, is the 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 intergr- the MSO the the physician multi practice facilities because that's where you know doctors and and the other caregivers interact with them a lot a lot more frequently. Whereas you know in a in a hospital there's units and people become a little bit more isolated. So um, you know I, I'm I'd, I'd say it's 50 50. You know, From an ACO perspective the the, the greenfield opportunity exists in the, in the multispecialty practices where you know, you can enact some pretty small changes that have some pretty disproportionately large impacts on patient care, patient compliance, and so on. I mean this is the reason we measure the the consumer's assessment of the provider's service. We want that a happy patient is much more likely to be compliant. And that's why in the proposed rule, there's so many measures of patient participation and so on. You know, if you're nice to these people, they'll they'll start to behave. So why don't we just go ahead and measure that?
0: And how are you finding uh, receptivity for that uh, suggestion or recommendation?
1: Well, you know, the the patient satisfaction connection to the effect of management has been an aha uh-huh in many cases. And, you know, kind of connecting the dots between the way you treat each other is going to affect the way those patients rate you. And that's a bonus that you get because management is getting paid based on patient satisfaction. Uh, So when we make those, you know, fairly simple connections, there's a a very big aha that pops up and, and folks are very receptive to this idea. I mean, nobody really puts on their tie in the morning and says, I want to go ahead and impress my coworkers today. Um, you know, but you, you just get into these bad habits and it's it in essence becomes a communication issue. And, and, and again, I got to stress the, the fundamental problem in ACOs, the fundamental problem in healthcare, you know, almost, you know, and, and many other organizations, it's a human to human communication problem. And to the extent that you can streamline that, smooth it out, and make sure that everyone's speaking to each other at the right level, in the right role, with the right level of respect and so on. You know, it sounds all happy, fuzzy, but that—that's the secret sauce. If people talk to each other with respect and, and dignity, and so on. You know, a lot of good things come out of that.
0: So, if we were to aggregate or or uh, segment the, these two in in the institutional setting, typically hospitals, versus the physician or professional setting, IPAs up to and including perhaps the MSO. Who of the is there a relative advantage here towards uh, adaptation or transformation, or are they sort of equally dysfunctional? Uh,
1: they have different dysfunctions, as you would expect. Um, there's there's a lot more tribalism in the larger organizations, right? Because you know we're in the you know we're in the OR, so we're the OR tribe, and you know we're the ICU tribe, and we're the ED tribe. Whereas in the in, in the IPA, you know it's you know, they they more form around the doctor, so then there's, you know, when there's conflict, it's usually between doctors and their doctor's people.
0: And I thought silos were dead.
1: <laughs>
0: sure. <laughs> what well, happened to all those grand service line experiments back in the uh, 90s? Um, well, they were still doing them. Yeah. And, and they to have forgotten a few of those. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. Well, I didn't mean to stop you there. You were on a roll. Oh no! Um, I'm 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 just I'm I'm.
1: If you boil healthcare down to its simplest its simplest element, it's a doctor and a patient having a conversation. The doctor is asking all the questions, the patient's answering all the questions.
0: I love and, that. And,
1: and then they basically start the machine from there. Once the doctor gives the patient a disease, they give them the diagnosis, and then the machine knows what to do with it. And that communication process replicates again and again and again. as clear as that was, it mediates how clear the rest of the delivery system is, and that doctor has to give orders you know or or you know, uh, for the other people to do what they need to do. And we're trying to we're trying to model that with an IT system that is going to at the end make sure that that patient heard the doctor correctly and that the patient follows the doctor's directions. Or their doctor's orders, and we're going to reward we're going to reward the the those systems that are better communicators with patients under this ACO program. Well, you know that 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 sounds really simple, but you know you that's a fractal pattern that comes up with a very complex situation. That if you attack it from the outside in, instead of starting with fundamentals and, and starting with you know these are the simple things we need to fix, you know you, you can end up in a, in a different zip code and still wondering what we're doing working together while, while this, you know, we're sitting in the middle of ashes smoking rumble.
0: I just I just love your language. Fractals is a great one. Um, so is polarization inevitable? Yeah.
1: So, you know, one of the things we see happening here is then, you know, so not everybody wants to be an ACO. Um, some of the university hospitals, we've talked to sniff at it. And it doesn't really make sense for them to try and reorient their mission from reducing utilization in specific areas to managing outpatient. They're good at dealing with specific things like high complexity, you know, broken, you know, massive trauma, and all that sort of stuff. And an ACO is not going to have a trauma service line because you can't. Well, um, I guess you could prevent that from keeping people from jumping out of things or speeding, but you know, at the end of the day, that's not where the cost is. But university hospitals and large tertiaries – They need to become procedure hubs, and a lot of the ACOs we're we're working with, uh, every one of them has a contract with a major tertiary level one in the area that can handle the utmost complexity, because if I'm at risk for this stuff, I need to provide it, so let's just set the rate card. And then, you know, there's at the other end, at the the other end of the hub, those tertiaries and the spoke, is the, you know, the outpatient, you know, low utilization primary care focused provider like these uh, ipas and msos etc and in between is a no man's land um and and you know while not everybody will be part of an aco we're seeing a lot more resource constraint there as the market begins to kind of you know mitotically split and and, and kind of form the two ends of the dumbbell and you know unfortunately with, with all the hoopla around there's a lot of organizations that are stuck in the middle ground that can't do one or the other really well are standing there waiting now, which way should I go? Which way should I go? Um, and that's what's, you know, that and a couple of other forces is what we're seeing, the, you know, the market continue to consolidate, you know. We're seeing providers be gobbled up by others. We're seeing the uh, closures re or strategic option consideration F- facilities are closing or they're becoming rehab facilities or reskilling themselves and, and remissioning. All of those sorts of things are happening as a consequence of these secular forces, and the a c o one is just a amplification of this from more outpatient to you know uh, to the other end of the spectrum, and you know these two bimodal distribution of the the hub and the and the hub, the procedure heavy place with the gamma knife and the, you know, the dynamic volume CT scanners and the intraoperative MRs and all the vascular suites, you know, all those sorts of things, those heavy procedure areas, we don't need as many of those as we have, but we still need them. We're going to need them in a coordinated fashion, and we're going to want to aim the right people at them at the right time instead of just letting people decide for themselves. So that's that bimodal kind of polarization we see happening out there. And you know, providers you know, hospital providers really need to decide where they want to be. I
0: I just love the way you've you've characterized the market, uh the the and the polls here and I just want to remind people who are listening that uh, this post is at acowatch.com. dot com. And uh, I just want to read here, um, in between these polls the undifferentiated and moderately capable provider will struggle, especially in competitive and highly populated markets. The mid-market will devolve in urban areas and struggle in rural markets where volumes are mixed and population mobility expands the competitive reach of hub providers. As the healthcare system evolves, new players will likely emerge, but we foresee these new actors as focused and operationally competent. Talk about that, because you get into the fact that opting out is not uh, um, devoid of risk per se.
1: Yeah, so I mean, every now and then, and I see this a lot more on the part of um, device makers and so on, because you know their world has been dominated by physician preference. And, you know, they love community hospitals with big ORs where everyone wants to do more implants. And, you know, you go to many of these these community hospitals that are, you know, in a urban area, but they're in an outlying area. And downtown is the big trauma center. Then there's the big charity care facility. And then there's, you know, there's a couple of centers of excellence around there. But, you know, in between them are these tweener hospitals that are that are kind of just there. And you look at their website and you look at their individual, you know, their, their marketing initiatives, and they just kind of sit there and they're like, we're here. And, and and you go, Well, why? Why are you here? Well, um, you know, we got an OR and you know, we wanna and, and you watch their case mix index kinda dip, you watch you watch a whole lot of different things kind of lean against them and they've been a traditional not for profit for years, they've just been there and they've got kind of a moderate medical policy, you know, strength, if if not weak. They just they're filling space, and they're hoping, you know, that they can continue to, to try and play the rate increase game with their payers and, and still survive. We see a lot of pressure on them, and, you know, from a regulatory standpoint, uh, if you look at the, the amount of overhead and stuff that's allocated to these facilities and the amount of cost that they contribute, we just don't need as many of them. Um, and at under, the undifferentiated provider, the one that does not have a service line that they are good at, they struggle with inefficiencies they're struggling to maintain the staffing they need they're struggling to maintain the medical uh, coverage that they need you know they're 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 just struggling all over the place and those folks we're going to lose we're going to lose quite a few um, unless they become differentiated and you know having an ACO in the area that begins to move patients in and out of your way um, you know it's going to have a pretty substantial effect because it's not going to take a lot to get those facilities to tip over uh from a margin standpoint they're 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 already challenged they've been running at an operating loss for years, and you know now with a little bit of a a, a little bit of a financial crisis they're having a hard time making money you know, on bake sales and, you know, fundraising and all that sort of stuff. So, you know, that's where we – the battleground is going to be for those facilities that are in between, especially in the urban areas where there's a lot of competition. If they can't find, a, a you know, a, a position, um, they will be merged out of existence or likely disappear um, and you don't have to look around very far, and you, you know, in any large metropolitan facility. I mean, in Tucson here, where we live, there were when we moved here in the early 2000s, there were 12 facilities. Now there are nine. Um, you know, we just we lost a few because we didn't need them. And they were exactly these tweener facilities that didn't have a position. They were undifferentiated. They just kind of sat there.
0: So I'm, I'm, I'm reminded of Clay Christensen in uh, The Innovator's Prescription talking about the general acute care or typical community hospital as being essentially an unsustainable business model.
1: Well, it's, it, we, you know, that came from Burton the Burton Act, where we decided we had, didn't have enough hospitals, so we just built them. And it was sustained by a very generous Medicare payment policy, both on capital as well as cost pass-through, which has progressively begun capitated. And as we step into 2015, where episode-based payment is going to be walling off a lot more of those cost pass-through opportunities, you know, the, 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 those old facilities that have built in inefficiencies that were designed and, and equipped in an in era that don't, no longer exists and demographics that no longer exist. Yeah, we're we're going to get rid of them. That's part of the natural that's part of the natural market evolution.
0: Thanks, for the context. It's it's still uh it's like this ocean liner that started turning back in the mid seventies. Apparently, it's still in the ark. <laughs> yeah.
1: Well, and but I mean, like, and it's like anytime we decide we're gonna we're gonna cut reimbursement for hospitals, what does the AHA say?
0: No. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. Well,
1: they we should. They're doing their job, but we we just had to. If you look at utilization, I mean, capacity utilization, we're fifty five percent nationally. That means we got almost half extra capacity. That's an AHA number, right? I mean, it's just too much.
0: So, uh, in uh, in this ACO paradigm, uh, and the, for that class of who might fall into this bucket of undifferentiated yet moderately capable. Um, There really is an appeal for purposeful collaboration here. No? Yes. Um, I mean,
1: first of all, I mean my prescription for a community hospital is decide what business you want to be in, and then start betting on it. Start making some strategic investments, and it starts according to the four tiers again. From because even if you don't want to be an accountable care organization, you know the four the four point prescription still works, right? Where's your medical policy strongest? how can you how can you guide physician behavior in a downward sloping reimbursement environment where you're going to be paid less for the same sorts of things you know how are you able to leverage the it you have to streamline care and improve patient flow how are you managing your your human resources to improve care coordination avoid readmissions and so on and then these readmission penalties are happening with or without the aco aco final rule and then how are you managing your fund balances to be able to to you know, build a build a, uh, a package that can allow you to sustain yourself. Those four things still work, even if you're not an ACO. And if you're a community hospital, you need to be thinking about what you're doing there. That you know, just putting up a billboard saying "Come, we're here. You know, we've got a wonderful environment that heals people. You know, that that's just and that's not compelling. Um, and you know, if 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 this consumer choice world evolves. When after we go to a single payer where Uncle Sam picks up primary the private pay layer of insurance that still will exist after we've got everyone insured those patients are going to have more choice and they're going to be they're going to be voting with their wallets and their feet um, you know this is one of the things about value-based purchasing that's a different topic for different days you know me- Medicare turning itself into a private payer and starting to dis- discriminate between providers based on quality and value you. Know, you, you've got to be good at something. You can't just be there.
0: So if I'm a CEO uh, in perhaps one of these uh, undifferentiated <laughs> but marginally capable facilities in terms of a broad tapestry of what it means to survive in my market, yeah, I get this as a prescription, um, but what do I do tomorrow? Yeah, so –
1: tomorrow you need to you need to take a, a pretty good look at your environment with it from a different perspective. Uh and 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 I uh, you know, I think it would, it would whether whether or not you like the SWOT analysis, which you know, I'm I'm not a tremendous fan of, you need to really think about what you're you know, go go to your strengths. Figure out what you're good at. Then once you're there, start to consolidate around that core of strength. And uh and and From there put together a strategic plan. Don't go bother your CFO to get you a better contract right yet. Don't don't go tank up in the community until you know what you're gonna be doing. But you gotta have a vision, you gotta have a plan. So I you know, make one
0: and start with what you're good at. Right. Well, I wanna say what a Fascinating conversation. Uh, Gunther uh, got some great ideas, and I'm sure people will appreciate uh, listening to this broadcast. And how would they contact you if they want to chat?
1: Uh, it's Gunter at t i g i dot net. G u n t e r at t i. That's Tango India Golf India t i g i dot net, um, or Gunter Vessels. G u n t e r w e s s e l s. Follow me on Twitter. That's my handle, at GunterVessels.
0: And I uh, strongly recommend giving Gunter a shout-out. So thanks again for Gunter for his time and incredible insights on ACOs and the prescription for success. Check it out, acowatch.com. And we do this every Wednesday at 11 a.m. Pacific time, and hopefully you will stay with us and uh, participate in our our dialogue going forward. So thanks again, Gunter, and bye now. Bye-bye.